Our text this morning is in Matthew chapter 27. And I would invite you to take the infallible record and open it to that place. We will be looking at verses 54 through 61. Today we will examine some of the death and burial prophecies that were fulfilled. Beginning in verse 54 of Matthew 27. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, This was the Son of God. And many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, among whom was Mary Magdalene, along with Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given over to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. The Bible is the only religious document in the world containing prophecy. You might ask why. Well, the answer is quite simple. It's because the Bible is the only document that was written by God who not only knows the future, but has ordained it. Indeed, according to Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his will. And God even spoke through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 9, and said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Now, Satan has written many lies. Lies such as the Koran, the Book of Mormon, the apocryphal books of the Old and New Testament, I think of the Watchtower magazine that the Jehovah's Witnesses insist is written by God. The Christian scientists, science and health with keys to the scriptures, etc. But none of these lies contain prophecies that can be verified. And of course, you wouldn't want that because if you had a prophecy and it did not come true, it would expose your document as a fraud. Henry Morris has correctly said, and I quote, an especially powerful type of historical evidence for the Bible and Christianity is that of fulfilled prophecy, historical events written down long before they actually happen. 
Hundreds of prophecies in the Bible have been remarkably fulfilled exactly as foretold, but often hundreds of years later. This type of evidence is unique to the Bible and can be explained only by divine inspiration. God, the creator of time, is outside of time. He is the one who controls the future and therefore is the only one who knows the future. Morris goes on to say, Bible prophecies are not vague and rambling, such as those of Nostradamus and other supposed extra-biblical prophets. Prophecies in the Bible deal with specific places, people, and events, and their fulfillments can be checked by reference to subsequent history. End quote. Indeed, God has established a divine standard for prophecy. We know how a prophet is true and how one is false simply by what happens to the prophecy that they claim is supposed to happen. We read about this, for example, all the way back in Deuteronomy, when God said in chapter 18, beginning in verse 20, But the prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Friends, we hold in our hands this morning word, the word of the living God. And there is perhaps no greater proof of the veracity of divine authority of Scripture than fulfilled prophecy. Now, you must understand, while the scope of Bible prophecy can be diverse, much of its fulfillment is found in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ including his death, his burial, and resurrection. And, of course, there's much more that will yet come that will also be fulfilled precisely and literally when he returns again. And we look forward to those days. But as we look at the prophecies this morning contained even in this text, I should say the fulfillment of prophecies contained in this text, we will see that they focus primarily around the incarnation of Christ with respect to his death and his burial and even his resurrection. Now, first of all, let's place ourselves in the context. Last week, you will recall that we looked at six miraculous messages that have proceeded from the crucifixion, each revealing the might and the malice of the cross. There were six supernatural events that manifested themselves in the infinite power of the Almighty. We saw his hatred of sin in these events. They were darkness that covered the earth. There was the alienation from the Father that the Son experienced on the cross, the miracle of him yielding up his spirit, the rending of the veil in the temple, the great earthquakes with the rocks that split, and even the tombs that were opened when selected saints were resurrected. Now, the corpse of Jesus hangs upon the tree, limp. He is gone. 
and in the midst of the midday darkness and the quaking of the earth. In verse 54, we read that the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly, this was the son of God. Now, of course, this should have been the response of everyone on that day. But for many reasons that God only knows, his regenerating mercies were limited, at least primarily, to the hearts of his executioners. Now, no doubt there were others that came to Christ that day that were not mentioned. But I find it fascinating that here was an answer to Jesus' prayer Recorded in Luke 23, 34, when he hung upon the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, you must remember that these pagan soldiers were probably part of the garden arrest. You recall when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus and they were flattened on their back when they asked who Jesus was and. He said, I am. He gave the covenant name of God and the power of that name flattened them. These servants of Rome also knew of Jesus' claims to be the son of God, the king of the Jews. They knew that he was a miracle worker. Everyone knew that because virtually all of the disease in Palestine had been healed. They knew that he had raised the dead. Word got around on that. They also knew that he was no threat to Rome. <laughs> he had no army. He carried no sword. And no doubt they also knew that he had exposed the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. They were also aware of Pilate's repeated claim that Jesus was innocent. It's a very good likelihood that they were even there when the report came from Pilate's wife warning him to not arrest this man and to leave him alone. And certainly they were witnesses of Jesus' righteousness as he surrendered himself to the Father on the cross. And I'm sure they were bewildered by the Jewish cries for his crucifixion. And now the, the, the world is dark. I would imagine that they have probably lit some torches the earth has been quaking, rocks have split. No doubt that has given off a very loud and thunderous roar in various places. And they also see other observers gathering around. According to Luke 23, verse 38, it says that the multitudes who came together for this spectacle and when they observed what had happened, they began to return beating their breasts. So this is what was going on. No doubt the multitudes were alarmed. Now maybe they have second thoughts with all of the events that are going on with the darkness, with the earthquake. Maybe they are filled with guilt. God only knows how many of them turned to Christ in saving faith. I believe probably quite a few. If we read later on, according to Acts 2, beginning in verse 36, we read that Peter was preaching to them. And there it says that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter goes on to say, many were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent 
And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And according to verse 41 of that text, it says that 3,000 souls were saved that day. So there on that hill of atonement, a group of hardened Roman soldiers became soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing thought? An amazing scene. And in verse 55, we read that many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom was Mary Magdalene, along with Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, Mary Magdalene was from Magdala on the western shore of Galilee. I've been to that place. And she was identified as such because she was a single lady. Interestingly enough, in Luke 8, beginning in verse 2, we have a description of her as one of several women that were there. And that text says that she was one who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. How often I have seen those who have been saved from the greatest distress become very often the most devoted to the Savior. Also, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, was there. This, by the way, was uh, James, one of the apostles, the son of Alphaeus. And then also the mother of the sons of Zebedee. In other words, the mother of James and John the men that Jesus called the sons of thunder. I have to pause here and say, praise God for devoted women. Loyal to the end. Keep in mind now, all of the disciples, except for John, were cowering in fear someplace in a remote area of Jerusalem, afraid for their lives, but not these precious servants of the Lord. They stood by the Savior to the very bitter end. The characteristics of these women, by the way, qualify them for support in the church when they become widows. Just as a parenthetical thought, we were to look at First Peter five. I mean, First Timothy five and verse ten. We read that the women that qualify for church support would be those who have a reputation for good works, have brought up their children, have shown hospitality to strangers, washed the saints' feet assisted those in distress, and devoted herself to every good work. And certainly this describes these dear ladies. And I I have to say, I praise God for women like this that we have right here at Calvary Bible Church. We have a number of them. There is no more demanding job on earth than being a mother who raises her children at home. That is a demanding job, a 24-7 job. And yet, so many of you still find time and have the strength to minister to others. And men, we need to applaud the sacrificial devotion of godly women. It's fascinating that these three women were not only eyewitnesses to the crucifixion, along, by the way, with Mary, the mother of Jesus. We read about that in John 19.26. But afterward, they also came to prepare the body and And they were the ones that were there when the Lord was resurrected. In fact, he appeared first to two of these women. 
John MacArthur, MacArthur offers another very important observation that I thought was worth mentioning to you. He said, and I quote, the first of the three women Matthew mentions was not married. The second was identified by her children and the third by her husband. The implication seems to be that divine dignity is bestowed on all categories of womanhood. God has a marvelous and blessed role for women. He has gifted with singleness for women who are faithful mothers and for women who are faithful wives. And perhaps in order not to suggest a secondary rank for the single woman or for the formerly wicked woman, Mary Magdalene is here named first, end quote. So here we see the marvelous power of the cross and a testimony of the saving grace of the one who hung upon it. And this brings us to the very heart of the text as this morning we behold the staggering events surrounding the death and the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Events which perfectly fulfill five prophecies. And we see this delineated here beginning in verse 57 through 61. Now, before we look at it closely, may I say that not only is it staggering to think that God knew in his omniscience precisely what would happen. But think about this. It is probably even more staggering, more astounding to think that somehow he can orchestrate Every minute variable in the universe over thousands of years to accomplish his predetermined plan. That is absolutely inconceivable. And yet we see it happening over and over again in Scripture. Now think with me for a moment of the infinite number of, of attitudes and actions in the minds and wills of men and demons that God must superintend to bring to fruition what he has decreed. Think about that. We know this as Christians, according to Philippians 2.13, it says that it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In fact, in Jeremiah 10 and verse 23 we read that I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. And by implication, it is God that is at work within us. This is an inscrutable mystery, as are all of the doctrines that we find in Scripture. Think of this now. He gives to each of us the freedom to exercise our wills to make choices. And yet he meticulously arranges them into the perfect harmony of his sovereign will. God says in Isaiah 42, verse 16, I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. And in Proverbs 16, verse 9, the mind of man plans his way. But the Lord directs his steps. And also in Proverbs 19:21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. Indeed, the miracle of divine providence is beyond our comprehension. 
And all we can do, dear friends, is stand in awe and in humility before our sovereign God. And here in Matthew's account of Jesus' death and burial, we see divine providence at work. The first fulfilled prophecy that God superintended was regarding the grave in which Jesus was buried. Notice in verse 57, it says, And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Now, this is the fulfillment of a prophecy given some 700 plus years before it happened in the book of Isaiah. Now, you might recall that in Isaiah chapter 53, there are numerous predictions concerning the lamb that was led to slaughter, including a prediction concerning the burial place of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9 of Isaiah 53, we read that his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Now, you must understand, normally, the bodies of criminals in the days of Jesus would be dumped in a common grave. A common grave that would be open to the dogs and to vultures to further desecrate the corpse. And sometimes they would be dumped into a smoldering rubbish hole of the Hanam Valley, which was also called Gehenna, that was just outside Jerusalem. Now, this would have been the grave assigned to him with wicked men, as Isaiah 53 says. But God had other plans. Instead, he was to be buried by, the text says, a rich man. And, of course, that was Joseph of Arimathea. Now, remember that Joseph was a part of the Sanhedrin. In fact, according to Mark 15:43, he was a prominent member of the council. But he was not like his wicked counterparts. He was a good and righteous man, according to Luke 23, verse 50, a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their plan of a and action. It goes on to say that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And even here in Matthew, chapter 27, verse 57, it says that he had become a disciple of Jesus. Literally, he had become a learner that sat at Jesus' feet. However, he was afraid of his Jewish colleagues and his countrymen, and so he kept his devotion to Jesus secret. And we read about that in John 19, verse 38. But now he conquers his fear, and he goes to Pilate, and he asks for the body of Jesus, the body of his Messiah. And here we read at the end of verse 58, Then Pilate ordered it to be given over to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. But friends, as we look closely at this text, as well as other gospel accounts, we see a second prophecy fulfilled concerning the three days that he was in the grave. You will recall in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, Jesus had predicted, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
And indeed, just as Jesus had promised, he was in the grave three days. He was placed in the grave on the day of preparation of the Passover, according to John 19.31, which would have been Friday. That would equal the first day that he was in the grave. Now, it's important for you to note something. You must understand that a day here does not necessarily mean three 24-hour periods of time. We might, for example, say that we took a trip, a three-day trip. But in fact, we might have left on Friday afternoon at 5 p.m. We were gone all day Saturday, and maybe we came back Sunday morning at 9. And this is kind of what was going on here. That would not mean that we were gone three full days. Jesus' predictions here included only a portion of the first day and only a portion of the third day, not the full 24-hour period. If we insist on three 24-hour periods, then Jesus would have had to have been buried on Wednesday, be in the ground all day Thursday, all day Friday, and all day Saturday, and then risen on Sunday. That, that would be part of five days. But, my friends, such a view is in contradiction to the Gospels. In fact, in Mark 15:42, it's clearly stated that the crucifixion was on Friday. It says, the day before the Sabbath. And the resurrection, according to Mark 16:2, was sometime before dawn on Sunday, the first day of the week. So Jesus was in the grave three days as he promised. A third fulfillment of prophecy concerning his death and burial is that of no bone being broken in his body. Now this prophecy is found in Psalm chapter 34 and verse 20. A psalm referring to the coming of Messiah. It says that he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Now, this, of course, was in keeping with the preparations of the Passover lamb that foreshadowed the lamb of God. We read about that, for example, in Exodus 12:46, that they were not to break any bone of that Passover lamb. Now, in order to understand this, we need to look at something very fascinating to get the context here. According to the Mosaic law and Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23, we read that the corpse of a criminal could hang on a tree all day long as a public reminder of the consequences of sin, but it had to be removed before sunset. That was the law. And it had to be buried that same day. So that means in this case, that body could hang on the tree all day long Friday, but it had to be buried before six o'clock on Friday. Because at 6 o'clock, Shabbat would begin, the Sabbath. So, it was important not to defile the Sabbath, which began at 6 o'clock on Friday night. So, Jesus had to be removed, according to Matthew 27, 57, when it was evening. And that would have been a reference to that interval of time between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. Now, the Romans would not allow anyone to be removed from a cross unless they were dead. That was the law. And Jesus had really only been on the cross since 9 o'clock that morning. So thinking that he's probably dead, because many times the victims would linger on for several days, the Jews asked Pilate 
to break the legs of the three men to ensure that they were dead. They've got to get this body off before Shabbat. And especially before the high and holy day of the Passover. And so normally what they would do then is they would take a large mallet and they would shatter the bones in the victim's legs. And the bones, therefore, could no longer support the person. And the excruciating pain of those legs being broken, combined with their inability to support themselves, would cause them to very quickly suffocate and die. And then they would take a spear and they would pierce the heart to make certain the victim was dead. So Pilate, now being afraid of the Jews for many reasons that we have learned earlier, agreed. But this would make it appear if he was going to give the body to them, I mean, give the body to the soldiers and allow them to break the legs, that the messianic prophecy of Psalm 3420 would be in jeopardy because it says there that the bones weren't supposed to be broken. Likewise, if Jesus was the Passover lamb, according to Exodus 12, 46, the, the bone was not supposed to be broken. Because, you see, all of this could really upset the prophetic apple cart here. But we find it very interesting what happens. And we see this in John chapter 19. And I would invite you to turn there for a moment. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 31. Here we see the amazing fulfillment and we see God's providence once again in action. John 19:31 says, "The Jews therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man, and of the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. And he who has seen this, who has seen, has borne witness, and his witness is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe for these things came to pass. Now, underline this, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. Now, there we have. Another amazing fulfillment of prophecy with respect to not one single bone being broken of the Passover lamb. But we see a fourth prophecy with respect to the piercing spear into the Savior's side that would go up into his heart. Again, we see this in John 19.34 that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately there came out blood and water. In verse 37, it says, and again, another scripture says, there shall, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. And this is following verse 36, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And of course, verse 37 is the prophecy in Zechariah 12.10 that was fulfilled. By the way, God has promised in Zechariah 12 and in other passages that when Christ returns, 
Israel will finally recognize their Messiah. And with the deep remorse of of genuine contrition, they will mourn over the one whom their forefathers pierced. That text reads as follows. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will mourn on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now, folks, here's what's fascinating about all of this. Truly a manifestation of divine providence. Think about this. Why would the soldier pierce the heart of Jesus with a spear when, according to John 19.33, they realized that he was already dead? That's why they didn't break his legs. Now, I'm certain that the soldier knew nothing of the Old Testament prophecy concerning the piercing of the Savior. So why would he do this? Well, the answer is simply this, that in the providence of God, he unwittingly chose to do that which would fulfill a divine promise as well as a divine purpose. One that was spoken over 500 years ago by the prophet Zechariah. Now, why, why would this be important? I wonder why God would do this. Well, quite simply, to silence the mouths of critics as well as to cause the saints to sing. Because, folks, when we look at these fulfilled prophecies, it causes us to rejoice within our hearts to understand once again that all that God has said is true and all that He has promised is going to come to pass. I don't have to worry at nights thinking that somehow I serve a God that might not be able to pull off the things that He has promised. I can rest in absolute confidence. And so too could those precious saints in that first century who began to understand the fulfillment of these great prophecies in those days of persecution and suffering. Isn't it wonderful to know that God is using each of us to accomplish His sovereign purposes? Again, Philippians 2.13 For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Proverbs 16.9 that we read earlier, The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I'm fascinated when I think about that soldier. That soldier had no idea that his choice to pierce Jesus' side and go up into his heart with a spear, something that wasn't necessary to do, was a choice that he made that was supernaturally superintended by a sovereign God that he may not have even known. As a footnote, the scar of that piercing, along with the nail scars, remained in Jesus' resurrected body. In fact, in John 20, verse 27, we read about Thomas. You will recall he placed his hand in that very wound. But here we also see a fifth example of divine providence as God orchestrates the events of his universe to accomplish his prophetic predictions and glorify himself. And we see this in what I would call the Savior's broken heart. Now in Psalm 69 that we read at the beginning of the service, 
You will recall that was a prayer of David as he pours out his heart in anguish over the relentless slander and ridicule that he was experiencing. But we also know that the Holy Spirit of God applied this psalm to the suffering and shame of the Savior through various New Testament writers. And it is really a psalm of a a, a heartbreaking psalm, a, a heart rendering psalm that describes the pain of being hated by those whom you love and being mocked and ridiculed by your enemies. And all through that psalm, we see clear references to the pathos of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 20 of Psalm 69, it says, Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Reproach has broken my heart. And though I don't want to be dogmatic here, it would appear that this is precisely what happened to Jesus there on that cross. There have been documented cases of a broken heart. When a heart literally bursts, when one experiences severe emotional and physical pain and trauma, And when this rare phenomena occurs, medical experts tell us that the pericardium sac around the heart fills with blood and lymphatic fluid. And therefore, when that spear went up and pierced that heart, John 19.34 says that immediately there came out blood and water. So perhaps again we see another prophecy fulfilled but certainly another reminder of the cost of our redemption. Ransom that was paid in full by the blood of the Lamb that died in our stead. So here we have seen four, possibly even five events surrounding the burial of Jesus that fulfill Bible prophecy. And again, folks, aren't you glad that we serve a God who not only knows the future, but can control it? can control everything. And this is why, by the way, ours is a blessed hope. We read this in in Titus 2.13. We have a blessed hope. All that God has promised about His second coming and our future enjoyment of Him, all of these things are really a blessing to us. It brings joy and excitement to the heart of the redeemed because ours is a certain hope. And as we look around us, we see People filled with self-righteousness, with hypocrisy, confusion, chaos. We see violence. We see wars, ignorance, idolatry. And frankly, a progressive deterioration of everything that is sacred. And we know, according to Scripture, that the worst is yet to come. But when we look at the prophetic word, we find comfort and we find encouragement to know that everything is in God's control. Everything's right on schedule. None of this is catching him by surprise. Our salvation, therefore, is sure. And I believe that it is soon. In fact, the Apostle Paul comforted the Thessalonian believers. Remember when he explained the future and cleared up some confusion about the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4.18. And the text says, therefore, encourage each other with these words. 
So whenever I come to prophetic word, I find great encouragement in them. So while the inconceivable suffering and shame of the Savior is almost unbearable to think about, we nevertheless find comfort in knowing that the sweet providence of God was at work then as it is now, precisely orchestrating our redemption. And indeed, fulfilled prophecy gives that reassurance of our blessed hope. By the way, according to 1 Corinthians 15:58, these glorious promises compel us to stand firm, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Aren't those wonderful words? Our toil is not in vain. In other words, folks, we're not just spinning our wheels here. We're not just wasting time. We have not bought into some massive lie. But indeed, what God has promised, he will fulfill. So Joseph gathers up courage, according to Mark 15:43. He goes to Pilate. He asks for the body of Jesus and Pilate orders that it be given to him. Now, Joseph's true devotion to Jesus is going to be known to all of his colleagues. And certainly he has sealed his fate with them. The ridicule and the rejection will now begin. And I think of Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But it goes on to say, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, since Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, Pilate was probably thinking that he was acting on their behalf. And so he was all too happy to get that body off the tree. He was, didn't want to hear any more fussing from the Jews about a body hanging on the tree during the Sabbath. And so he, and he certainly didn't want to offend them. So having no idea what Ju- Joseph was really up to, he gives him the body. In fact, Mark 15:44 tells us that Pilate wondered if Jesus was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So there again, we see the long arm of divine providence working in the minds and the wills of men. So in verse 59, as we draw things to a close this morning... We read that Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. As I think about this, my friends, such tender care indicates to me that Joseph was not thinking about a resurrection. If he had believed in a resurrection or if he was thinking about that, he would not have gone to such great lengths in the interment of our Lord. But he obviously loved Jesus. Now, I also think it's very exciting to note that John's Gospel reveals that another member of the Sanhedrin joined Joseph in the care of Jesus' body. We read that again in John 19, beginning in verse 39. It says that Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. 
Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. What a sacred time of fellowship that must have been, those two Jewish leaders, as they cared for the body of their Messiah. And there, dear friends, our sins were buried with him. The great Puritan John Trapp, the 17th century, wrote, and I quote, He was buried in Calvary to note that he had died for the condemned and in a garden to expiate that first sin committed in the garden and in another man's sepulcher to note that he had died for other men's sins. So Joseph now enters the Savior in a new tomb made for his family, rolls a stone against the entrance and he goes away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. What a picture of love and sadness. And to think that the tears that were rolling down their face would soon change to tears of joy when they found their Savior resurrected on that Lord's Day morn. Spurgeon has poignantly written a poem regarding this scene He says, rest, glorious Son of God, thy work is done and all thy burdens borne. Rest on that stone till the third sun has brought thine everlasting morn. How calmly in that tomb thou thou liest now, thy rest how still and deep. O'er thee in love the Father rests, he gives to his beloved sleep. On Bethel pillow now thy head is laid in Joseph's rock-hewn cell. Thy watchers are the angels of thy God. They guard thy slumbers well. One of the most difficult jobs of a pastor is preaching the funerals of those that we love. And very often I watch the family grovel in the very bottom of the sorrows of abyss when they watch that casket lid being closed. When they watch that casket being lowered into that grave, and when those first shovels full of dirt begin to pile up. But friends, knowing that our Savior dwelt in such a resting place, and knowing that He did not stay in that resting place, somehow robs that age-old haunting of all of its terror. There is no finality of the grave for the Christian. Because of Jesus' death, that king of all terrors holds no more fear. We have actually been released from its grip and we can actually look forward to dying knowing that when we do, we enter into the presence of the Lord. As Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15. So now the Lord is at rest, but not his enemies, as we will see in subsequent days. The fears and the malice of the wicked never rest. But what joy is ours, my friends, to know 
that it is only this old tabernacle that ends up in that grave. Our soul is with the Lord because we have been buried with our Master. and Like Him, we will be resurrected. May Christians ponder these magnificent truths and rejoice in them with inexpressible joy. But for those of you who do not know Christ, I pray that you will shiver with fear until you repent and bow your knee to the Savior. Lest someday you see Him not as your Savior, but as your judge. May you repent of your sins and cry out for His mercy while there is still time. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled at the glorious truths of Your Word as once again we ponder them in our heart and we praise You for Your grace in our lives. And Lord, I pray for those who may even be within the sound of my voice this day certainly loved ones and friends and neighbors that we have, those that think that somehow they're good enough to make the cut, that somehow because of all of their good deeds and maybe even their religious experiences and being a member of a church, that somehow all of that is going to earn them righteousness. Lord, I pray that somehow that damning lie will be annihilated by the power of Your Spirit And that they will be overwhelmed with the depth of their depravity and cry out for the righteousness that can only be theirs through the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, we commit them to You. Thank You for meeting with us this day. We pray that You have been glorified in this time. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that I pray. And with great thanksgiving. Amen. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.